Hey, good morning. How we doing? Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 1, picking it up in verse 15. Uh, basically, Cal left off last week after verse 14. And uh, just as a quick reminder, um, the book of Ephesians, we're going to be in this study all the way till Easter. And I would argue all day that of all of the books in the New Testament, probably Ephesians and the book of James are the most practical. In Ephesians, we're going to talk about how you break bad habits or bad attitudes. We're going to talk about communication skills, forgiveness, um, parenting, um, marriage, spiritual warfare, a lot of very practical things. And all of those things are in the last three chapters. So, so the first three chapters are doctrine. And when you hear doctrine, you think boring. I know because I used to sit where you sat. But here's the thing. Paul is going to unpack some things in the first three chapters that you're not going to get the practical stuff that he's getting to until you understand the doctrine in the first three chapters. So, so please bear with us in the early part of this study. Um, today's passage is, is, is kind of complicated. It's kind of deep. We're looking at a prayer that, pa that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. So we're going to unpack uh, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. Just as a reminder, this is a letter. The church in Ephesus, it's a church. We looked at its start a couple weeks ago in Acts 19. It's going through difficult seasons. It's going through persecution. It is in conflict with the culture of the city of Ephesus. Paul is writing it from prison. He's in Rome. He's awaiting execution. So, so this whole in, you know, thing that we're reading here is a letter from a prisoner to his church. It was interesting, even uh, early in the church, I was asked if I would do a visit with, with a prisoner, with an inmate that was up at Muskegon Correctional. I think he was in Brooks. And um, I had been to Brooks to visit other prisons, uh, prisoners before. But in this case, um, this was the first time I went kind of as, as like official clergy. So I had to get my clergy card. I had to go through kind of a background check. They had to vet me to make sure that it was okay. So I went through all that process, got to the prison, went through the metal detectors and everything else you have to do to get back in to see a prisoner. And I went to the room where you wait. It's kind of like a little cafeteria room. You sit on one side of the table, they sit on the other. You can't really engage. You can't give them hugs or a lot of physical contact. And I waited to meet this man I'd never met before. And um, his circumstances were he was in jail for life, no chance of parole. And he was probably, when I met him, maybe 35, maybe late 30s, early 40s. There had been a crime when he was in his early 20s. He had been part of a robbery that had gone bad. As that robbery went bad, a man had been shot and killed, and though he didn't pull the trigger because he was there as part of the robbery, he was sentenced first-degree murder, no chance of parole. Um, we'll call this guy Anthony because that was his name, okay? So it was Anthony that, we were visiting, that I was visiting that day, and as I went in to visit him in prison, I really didn't know what to expect. And uh, he kind of came out. I was seated first, and then some guards brought him into the room. And the minute that he saw me, a big smile broke out of, from his face. His, his mom had been like, it's going to be such an encouragement for you to visit him. And you could tell that he was encouraged. And then he sat down. We kind of greeted each other real quick. And then he asked me the important question, did you bring money? And I'm like, okay, what's, what's the deal? And, and so I'm just going to tell you, if you ever visit a prisoner, this was my rookie mistake. They live to see visitors, 
not only to see you, but because if you bring money, they can get food out of the vending machines. Like, this is critically important. If you visit a prisoner, you've got to have money for the vending machines. So he's like, do you have money? And I'm like, yeah, I've got some money. And and luckily, I had some singles and uh, some 20s. And he's like, well, can you go buy me a cheeseburger? Because there's nothing better than a microwavable cheeseburger out of a um, vending machine, right? So I go and buy the burger. Let's say I think it cost maybe $4 bought him the burger and he was like fired up and we began to talk and he devoured that burger and he goes, can I have another? And so the first burger cost me four bucks. If I remember correctly, the second burger cost me 42. Two singles, two 20s. It recognized the 20s as singles. The third burger was 80, okay? So I didn't have the heart to tell him as a prisoner that I I'd ran out of singles and I wasn't going to say no. So as he sat and ate the $80 microwavable cheeseburger, and we began to talk. It was interesting, the discussion. Knowing I was a pastor, he had a bunch of questions about the Bible. I hadn't brought my Bible. I didn't bring that in. And um, as we talked, maybe it was an hour, hour and a half. I don't remember how long. Here's what I'm going to tell you. That guy knew Scripture upside down and backwards. Anywhere I went in Scripture, he could go. Old Testament, New Testament. I'd refer to a passage, and the guy would start quoting it. He loved God's word. He'd been saved in prison. His life was completely transformed. And we talked about what it was like life in prison, and he asked me what was going on outside in our culture. And after an hour and a half there, I honestly, I don't know if I encouraged him. I know he encouraged me. And as I left, he, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to pray for you. That's humbling. When the prisoner is praying for you. Well, well, that's what Paul's doing here in 1 Thessalonians when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, in spite of the fact that he's in prison, in spite of the fact that he's awaiting execution, the, the church is heavy on his heart, and he's like, I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to look at that prayer. Let's jump in in verse 15. It says this, it says, um, for this reason is how verse 15 starts. I'm not going to even get past the first three words. For this reason, that's based off a reason. And let me just remind you of what Cal taught you guys last week. Paul begins his letter to the church in Ephesus saying, here is your identity because you are in Christ. And he spends 14 verses. 11 of the verses are one sentence. It's got no punctuation, over 200 words long in the Greek. Paul is an educated scholar and he forgets punctuation. He's pretty excited to tell them what's going on. And he lists off all the things that are our identity because we're in Christ. He says in verse 3 that we're blessed, we're citizens of heaven. He says in verse 4, we're chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, we're adopted. In verse 7, that we're redeemed and forgiven. In verse 8, that he's made known, we're enlightened, he's made known the mystery of his will to us. Verse 11, we, we have an inheritance. Verse 12, a hope. All of this, verse 13, it's sealed, it's guaranteed, it's promised because of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can take these things from us. And Paul didn't just talk about our identity in Christ. Cal pointed this out last week. In those verses, three different times he says, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. You're not given this identity by Christ. He hasn't given you all of these things because you're in Christ to do nothing with them. Your identity drives a purpose and your purpose is to the praise of his glory. That's what the church is called to. So what Paul does in verse 15 is he says, for this reason, 
because of all these things, then look what he does next. We're going to spend some time here. It says in verse 15, for this reason, because you have heard, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. So Paul's in prison in Rome. He's looking for reports from people who have been in in Ephesus. Hey, do you know about the church? What's going on in the church? How are they doing? And he's giving thanks because two things. There's two tasks to prove that they are really in Christ. Here's the first one, their faith. Now, it's important that we take a moment. If you, if you want to make sure that you're in Christ, if you want to make sure that these promises apply to you, what does it mean to have faith? Like, what are the essentials? What are the non-negotiables? What, what are the things that we can't miss as it relates to our faith? Paul is saying, you're in Christ, and the reason I know that is because of your faith. What are the things that we've got to make sure that we get right. If you're keeping notes, the first point is this, know who you are. There's two tests. The first one, faith. It says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so it's not that, that complex. Our faith has to be this. First, that Jesus is God, okay? That he is God. He is who he said that he was. Because he is God, don't miss this. He needs to be Lord. When we read in verse 15, when it says, for this reason we have faith in the Lord Jesus, Lord is not a title. It's not like Mr. Jesus. It's not a title that goes in front of Jesus' name. It's not Dr. Moeller. It's not a title. It's a position that he holds in our life. In our faith, is Jesus Lord? Is he the one that we're living to please, because this is the test. Is this true of you? Are you truly a follower of Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? Religion will teach you that you gain God's favor by what you do, that you are obedient, you go to church, you do works, and then you take that righteousness and you offer it up to God, and that is what saves you. The gospel is completely 180 different from that. The gospel says that any righteousness we have received, we've received it from God. The source of our righteousness is based off what Jesus did for us. Do we believe that Jesus in the cross took our place, paid the penalty for our sins? Do you have this faith? We can't miss this. Paul writes in Romans 10, he's talking about the Jews, the Pharisees, and they've spent their whole life trying to keep the law. They're very religious people, but the problem is, though they're religious, they're not saved. And listen to what Paul says in Romans 10. I'm just going to read you verses 1 through 4. He's writing to the church. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of the Jewish leaders, is that they may be saved. For I bear, witness, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That's an interesting verse because what Paul's saying is he says, listen, I'm watching the Pharisees. It, it's not that they lack effort. It's not that they lack intention. They lack knowledge. They don't get it. And when he says, I bear witness to them, don't forget, Paul in his previous life was a Pharisee. He was a man who had a ton of zeal, trying to do everything the law commanded not realizing that his righteousness couldn't save. And then he goes on in verse 3 and he says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What a great verse. 
What he's saying is they were trying to be righteous on their own, and what they wouldn't submit to was the fact that only God could make them righteous, and he did that through Jesus Christ. See, here's one of the things. Your faith is actually humbling. can't do it on your own. The faith that saves you is a humbling faith where you say, I can't do it on my own. I need a Savior. He says of the Pharisees, they wouldn't humble themselves. They were prideful. They were doing it on their own righteousness. And then he says in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law, the final part, the consummation, the conclusion, the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is not in contrast to the law. He fulfills the law. He does what we couldn't do. He kept the law. He completed it. Jesus will say in Matthew 5, 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, his first public sermon, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the first proof that you are in Christ, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is what you believe. Please hear me. Faith is the primary determination of whether or not you are saved. It is primary. It is more important than what you do. It's interesting. Again, this was actually before we started the church. I was asked to do my first funeral. Now, the circumstances of this were uh, my daughter had a friend. Her friend's dad had been killed tragically in a car accident. That family didn't go to church. They lived up in Fremont, and I was asked to do the funeral for the father of my daughter's friend. I'd never met him. And so I said I would, and I went and met with the widow, and I met with his kids, and we began to plan the funeral. And what became very apparent very early is this is a family that didn't have a lot of faith. They didn't go to church. And so it was important to them that the funeral was not inconsistent with who their father, their husband was. They didn't want a churchy service. So they didn't want any Christian music, and we sat and we planned the sermon. It was very, very simple, or the, or the ceremony. It was very simple. It was going to start out with a welcome. I was going to give a prayer. There was going to be a video tribute. There were going to be three eulogies. And then they wanted a very short message from me, only five or ten minutes. Just very, very quick. I'm like, great, I can do that. And uh, his, it was a one o'clock service, 12, 15, 12, 30, people started to show up. By 12.30, the room was full. There were hundreds of people at this. This man had had an impact on his community. There was a lot of support for his family, and um, he was a good man. About 20 minutes before the service, I, the daughter that my daughter knew called me and says, we need you in the back. The family's in a fight. I said, what's going on? Well, the, the widow has been approached by her husband's parents and they've brought their pastor, this old guy, and he wants to do a part of the service. They want him to be the pastor that leads it. It's 20 minutes till the service. I go to the widow. I said, what do you want? She goes, I don't want anything to do with that guy. I want him to have no part in the service. So I'm the mediator in this dispute. I go back to the deceased parents. I'm like, your pastor gets to play no part. They weren't overly happy with me. Ten minutes before the service, the three guys that were going to give the eulogy, all three of them back out. It's too hard. Can't do it. I've never met the man. I have to do the funeral. The guys that know him won't do it. So now if you look at the program that we've put together, it's prayer, welcome, video tribute, message, done. 
and I've got to give a message about a guy I know nothing about. So we start the service, I do the welcome, I say a prayer, the video tribute goes off. It's a two and a half minute tribute with pictures to the Beach Boys, Aruba, Jamaica, ooh, I want to take you. <laughs> now I've got five minutes to give the gospel. I stand up, I look at the crowd and I say, you know what, some of you, appreciate so many of you coming, supporting the family, some of you are very confident on where this man is today because he was a really good man. And about half the room shakes their head, yes. And then I look and I say, but there's another half of you who aren't real sure where he is today because he never went to church. Crickets. The room is very quiet. How am I doing so far, by the way? First funeral. And I let that hang for a minute. And then I said, I've got to be honest with you, I never met this man. I don't know that much about him. I'm not his judge. Nobody in this room is his judge. But there is a judge, and the criteria of how and what he'll be judged by is very, very clear in Scripture. Let me show it to you. And I took him to a passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, that I've used in every funeral that I've ever performed. If I do your funeral, I'm using this passage. Just know it, okay? But it's 1 Thessalonians 4. It says this in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul's been asked a question by the church in Thessalonica, what happens when you die? And what Paul does in answering that question is so profound in that verse. Don't miss it. He takes all of humanity, anyone who has ever lived, is going to live, is living now, all of humanity, and he immediately cuts them and divides them into two camps. There's brothers and there's others. There's those with hope and those that have no hope. You're either a brother or another. You either have hope or you have no hope. Which is it? What, like, what determines whether you're a brother or another? We'll look at how he answers it in the next verse. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. He says, The thing that makes the difference is where you have placed your trust, where your faith is, what you hope in. Hope is primary. It's the first test of whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's test number one. But please don't miss test number two at the end of verse 15. It says this at the end of verse 15. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. The second test is this, and I'm going to use a broad word here. It's transformation. Faith is primary. Practice is necessary. If, if you're keeping notes, the big idea this week is a faith that hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. If your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. Paul is saying, I understand your faith, and then the evidence of your faith is the fact that your love is growing. A couple weeks ago, I taught from Acts 19 at about the start of the church in Ephesus, and I said, here's how you know that there's transformation taking place. They're dragging their sin into the light. They're making Jesus most treasured in their lives. The, the, the proof of your faith always flows into your actions. If I were to ask you, do you know if you're saved or not? Like, how would, how would you answer that question? Like, or, I'm sorry, not, not saved. Well, well saved, we'll, we'll go there first. If you know if you're saved or not, how, how would you answer that? And many of you would do this. You'd say, 
while I was baptized. Uh, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Um, I, I went through a public confirmation. Like, that's how I know that I'm saved. You're looking at an event in the rearview mirror to establish your confidence that you've been saved. And by the way, a point of decision is important. There needs to be a point where you recognize your need, that you're a sinner, that you need to call on Christ, that he saved you, that the work that he did on the cross changes everything. But here's the question that I would ask you. Andrea, I'm going to pick on you. Can I do that? You sat up front. It's your fault. How long have you been married? 15 years. Okay. Question for you. How do you know that you're married? It's the license. Okay, did you frame the license? Does it live somewhere in your house? Okay, so, so tomorrow morning when you wake up and you look next to you in bed, you go, am I married to this guy? And you go, I must be. There's a marriage license. That's, that's your proof. You, 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 ref, you, you refer to the license. Okay, that's it. Okay, do you wear a wedding ring? Okay, can you take it off? Okay, I know, because after 15 years, I can take mine off because I've lost so many of them. But that's a whole other thing. Okay, so, so my ring's off. Uh, I've been married for 38 years to Kristen. Ring's off. Am I still married? Pretty sure. It's not the ring. It's not the ceremony. It's important that we had a ceremony, that we made some vows before God, some covenants. Like, the ceremony's important. I don't think it's your license. I really don't think you're waking up going, where is that license? I got to be sure. I don't think that's the case. I think the reason that you know that you're married to Jeremy is because you guys are doing life together. Yes. How'd you guys get to church today? Did you drive together? No. No, you drove separately. I was, I was afraid of that. Okay. <laughs> are you guys hanging out the rest of the day? Okay, you're going to hang out the rest of the day. Um, are there some kids? Okay. End of the day, you're going to go back to bed. Like, we won't get specific. It's like, you guys are married. You're doing life together, right? Okay, the proof is in the relationship. Yes, the ceremony is important. A faith that hasn't changed you, hasn't saved you. What is it that you believe? And is this relationship with Jesus transforming you? Paul says in Romans 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, to his son. So we talked last week that he chose you before the foundations of the earth. That's in, I believe, Ephesians 1 verse 4. Okay? In choosing you before the foundations of the earth, it says he didn't just choose you to save you. He chosed you. He chose you to be conformed to the image of his son. The, the biblical or theological word for that is sanctification, making you more and more like Jesus. It's not just a moment in time. It's a progression that you should see. You should be able to look at your life and say, am I changing? Am I being transformed? Primary is faith, what you believe. Secondary, you should see the proof of this in your life. In this passage, it's saying you should see your love grow. This is why later in Ephesians, after three chapters of doctrine, he starts chapter four. He says, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He will say in verse 17 of chapter 4, don't walk anymore as the Gentiles do. He will say in verse 22, put off the old self. In verse 24, put on the new self. You should be experiencing change. You should be able to look at your life currently and say, I am in a relationship. It is transforming me. John says this, John 13, we read, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love 
one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, what's the tell that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? If you love one another. It says in 1 John 2, 9 through 10, whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Okay, how do we know that we're saved? Our love for the brother is increasing. Who wrote John and who wrote 1 John? Do any of you guys know? John. Okay? Interesting, in the last part of John's gospel, in the last chapters, he keeps referring to himself, but not by name. He just says, and the disciple that Jesus loved. Man, that had to annoy the other disciples. The disciple who Jesus loved, the disciple who Jesus loved. But it shouldn't surprise you that the disciple who recognized that he was loved by Jesus says, listen, loved people, it's going to be evidenced by the fact that they love one another. That's what Paul prays for. He prays, if you're in Christ, these would be the evidences that you would be able to see. Look what he does next. This is his prayer. I don't cease to give thanks for you, verse 16, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. The first thing that he does is he prays that they would know. Not that they would acquire something, they already have it. Paul's not going to pray that they know something if they're not able to know it, to grasp, to comprehend it. So he's praying for something that they don't have to acquire, that they have the ability to know, and that they already have. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So to the church in Ephesus, he prays three things. He prays that you would know the hope, the riches, and the power that are already yours. And I just, again, thinking, if I'm in prison awaiting execution, this isn't the thing that I'm praying to the church in Ephesus. Here's what I'm praying. Help me. Get me out of here. Time for a jailbreak. I might also be praying, knowing that the church in Ephesus is under persecution, that they're going through hardships. I might be praying for their physical needs. I might be praying that they would be granted relief. Paul never touches on in his prayer any of his circumstances or the circumstances the church is going through. He's going for something greater. He's saying, I hope they understand their identity. I hope they understand their purpose. And I hope they have the hope and the riches, and the power. I hope they get it. Because when we get those things, it doesn't matter what our circumstances are, we'll experience joy. And if we don't get those things, it doesn't matter how good our circumstances are, we're going to miss it. And see, here's what I think Paul is doing. He's reminding the church of what they already have, because here's what he knows and I agree with. Too often we forget it, his followers of Jesus Christ. And we exchange hope for despair, we exchange riches for feeling like we're living in poverty without resource. And we miss the power. We actually feel weak. We, we live in a culture that is opposed to what we believe. We live in a world that is broken. We're longing for a day that we're reconciled. And, and in this season, too often we can get easily discouraged. I like this quote. It's from C.S. Lewis. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
or like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul is concerned that if they don't understand their identity, if, if they, they miss the hope and the riches and the power, that they're going to find themselves pursuing their identity in other things. So Paul goes in his prayer, not to the circumstances, but the things that will make the circumstances tolerable, the main thing. He wants them to know these things. And I'm going to just hit on these three, hope, um, riches, and power. And by the way, I spent so much time studying this, and I stand before you, I'm still not sure I understand the depth of it. This is some really deep stuff that Paul writes to them. I'm going to lean on some commentaries and some quotes to help me explain it, and hopefully you understand it. Here's the first one, hope. Our translation, the ESV, says, hope to which he has called you. The King James Version says, the hope of his calling, which creates a question. What is our hope? Is it in what we've been called to, or is it the hope of his calling? And you can go to commentaries, and, and like dudes debate this stuff. Is it our calling that he's referring to that is the source of our hope, or is it Christ's calling, the hope of his calling? And here's what I would say. You don't have to win the debate. It's not either or. It's both and. Any calling that we have is based off the fact that he was called before the foundation of the earth to choose us. And here's why that is important. If our faith, if our hope is based off our calling, what we do, here's the truth. Our faith goes up and down, doesn't it? We tend to think of faith as static, like we either have it or we don't, we're in or we're out, but the practicalities of life, our faith is somewhat fluid. It's not static, it's dynamic. In the Bible, I'll just give you a couple passages. In Matthew 8, verse 24, the disciples are in a boat, it says this, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep, and they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So in that story, the circumstances, the trials, the storm, their faith was weak. In Matthew 6, verse 25, it says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life or what you will eat or drink or your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So, so in two passages, one based off circumstances, one based off anxiety and fear and worrying about tomorrow, he, he, he's talking to disciples whose faith in that moment is weak. And by the way, faith can ebb and flow really quickly. And, and Peter, he's like a samurai warrior in the garden cutting off a Roman soldier's ear. And then just a few hours later, he's denying Christ three times. Like, like, that's a pretty big reversal of confidence, reversal of faith. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, our faith is going to ebb and flow. And quite honestly, for the church in Ephesus, I'm praying that's not you. I'm praying that your confidence has a foundation that's greater in your own calling, but it's actually in the calling of the one who called you. Because he is always faithful, he always keeps his promises, and he always accomplishes exactly what he sets out to accomplish. Then he says this, he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints. Again, a difficult little phrase. You'd miss it if you just read it really quickly. Trust me, I did. But then as I began to study it, one thing I want to point out to you, who's the inheritance? Is it ours or is it his? The text says it's his inheritance. 
In verse 13, he was talking about our inheritance in Christ, but now it's shifted. It's talking about Christ's inheritance. What is his inheritance? It's of the saints. This is his inheritance, Christ's inheritance Paul's talking about. Let me do my best to explain this. I'll read a quote from the commentary written by F.F. F. Bruce. He says this, Paul prays here that, the, that his readers will appreciate the value which God places on them, his plan to accomplish his eternal purpose through them as the first fruits of the reconciled universe of the future in order that their lives may be in keeping with the high calling and that they may accept a great, with grateful humility and grace and glory thus lavished on them. Here's what he's saying. Of everything in the created universe, we are most treasured by Christ. Don't ever think that you're not loved by your Savior. I'm going to say a little more on this at the end. Here's the third thing. He speaks about power. Look at verse 20. He said that, or he says this, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believed? And then the proof of that power is verse 20, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He goes, you want to, you got some questions whether God has power, your, your life's spinning out of control, you got some trials and you're wondering where God is? Hey, hey, let me explain something to you. Here's his power on greatest display. He conquered death. Now, if we were looking and saying, hey God, make, make your power evident, we could look to some things that we see in nature, right? We could look at a hurricane. We could look at a tornado. Um, right now, I think there was a volcano that, that erupted somewhere out in the ocean. They got tsunami warnings kind of up and down our west coast. Like, there's a lot of natural things and disasters that would point to the power of God. We could look to other creatures that he's created. In Job, he says, you know, look at the Leviathan, Job, and all of these creatures that he's created that are demonstrations of his power. I can't relate to the Leviathan thing, but here's what I know. In our house, when we were raising our kids, way too much emphasis, way too much emphasis on Shark Week. I've got adult children who won't go in salt water to this day, okay? Like, way too much emphasis on Shark Week. Hey, by the way, why are sharks, when we look at their power, why are they scary? Why do sharks scare you? Because they can eat you. And what happens when they eat you? You die. Why are tornadoes and hurricanes scary? Because you're going to die if one comes your way, right? So, so here's the point. He says, listen, Christ has defeated death. If death has been conquered, all other problems become very minor if your security is secu if your eternity is secure. Listen, in this life, you can have 99 problems, but if death ain't one, you're doing pretty good. He's defeated death. Here's the second thing. He's in complete control. Verse 20 seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him his head over all things to the church. He is in complete control. Our Savior is ruling the universe with his feet up. There is nothing that comes your way that isn't coming through his hands. As a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ today, your promise in Romans that he's working all things together for your good and his glory. What an incredible thing. And then finally, don't miss this. Here's the last thing. He delights in his followers. Again, this is back to what I was talking about before. Look what it says in verse 22. He gave Christ his head over all things to the church. 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Listen to what Calvin says on this. He says this, This is the highest honor of the church that unless he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What an encouragement it is for us to hear that not until he has uh, us, has one with himself, is he complete in all of his parts or does he wish to be regarded as whole? Okay, let me just try to explain what's almost inexplainable. When Calvin says that Christ in some ways views himself as imperfect, I go, ooh, I don't know that I like that, pressing against the edge. Because Christ being God has been perfect through all eternity past and will be perfect through all eternity future. But here's what Calvin is trying to say that this text is teaching. The one who fills everything in our universe, fills all in all, he is filled by us. The metaphors in the New Testament, he is the bridegroom who is incomplete without the bride. He is the head which is incomplete without the body. What he's saying here is he's saying God desires us to be with him. We are his inheritance. We are his fulfillment. His calling was to reconcile us to himself and he longs for the day when we can be there. Man, that's pretty awesome. And he's telling the church in Ephesus, don't miss his love for you in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your circumstances. Hey, there are seasons when it's tough to trust the promises of God, there's no doubt. Let me just close by pointing your attention. Paul writes in Romans 4, he's talking about Abram. Abram's been promised that through his descendants, a great nation, many great nations will come. It says this in Romans 4, 18, in hope, Abram believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver. No unbelief made Abram waver. The King James there says he staggered not concerning the promises of God, but grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he's promised. That is what Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. He didn't pray for something that they didn't already have. He didn't pray that they would get a new identity. He prayed that they would know what they already have, the hope and the riches and the power that are ours in Christ. I don't know how you staggered in here today, I don't know how much waver is in your walk because of the things that you're experiencing. Don't miss Paul's prayer. Don't forget who you are. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I even thank you for doctrine and the parts that are sometimes hard to understand. It would be my prayer that the Holy Spirit communicated to those in the room that they are loved that they belong, that they have an identity. I hope we just get a glimpse this size of eternity, how much you love us, how much you care for us. Father, I believe that all we can get now is a glimpse and we will spend all of eternity marveling in the fact that you chose to be our Savior. We're thankful for your Son, His work on the cross. May our faith be strong. It's in your name we pray. Amen.